People talk about roller coaster journeys in business, but you won't have heard one as extreme as that of this week's guest, Jacob Hill of Offploy. This is the Leeds Business Podcast, and I'm your host, Phil Fraser. I'm a business sounding board. Think somewhere between a business coach and a business mentor. I help business owners not to be lonely at the top. Jacob tells us all about his startup at the age of 19 that brought him business awards and £300,000 of angel investment, but also talks about the mistakes made that brought it all crashing down. He then shares with us the story of his arrest and subsequent prison sentence that changed his life forever, and the positives that have subsequently come from it. He also explains how you can access a pool of top quality staff with exceptional levels of motivation and loyalty at a fraction of market salaries. To make sure you never miss out on every episode of the Leeds Business Podcast, sign up to our priority list at www.leedsbusinesspodcast.com. Everyone that signs up gets a free gift to help their business. So, let's get into what is a really absorbing and thought-provoking interview. In today's episode of the Leeds Business Podcast, we talk to Jacob Hill, Managing Director of Ploy. Hi, Jacob. Hi, Phil. Thanks for having me along today. Uh, now, your story starts all the way back at school or, or at university. You came up with a brilliant business idea. Tell us about it. The business idea, I don't think it was so brilliant um, because I'm not doing it today, but maybe maybe it had its own value and benefit in some other way. Um, I I was um, I always went camping as a kid with my mum to Italy. We you know I always went to festivals when I was a teenager, and 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 after one soggy festival experience, I, I thought it'd be really helpful for parents and their kids maybe to have uh, one pack they could buy with everything you need to camp at a festival in, in one kit for seventy pounds. You'd order it online, collect it at the festival. And the extra lazy people could have it set up waiting for them. And I swear, it almost had everything in it, apart from the kitchen sink. It had your tent, sleeping bag, sleeping mat, fine. But we went as far as first aid kits, uh, ponchos, toilet seat covers. And I don't think they were very useful, actually, because no one wants to sit on a single ply piece of tissue on festival toilets anyway. So maybe that wasn't a good idea. But it, the idea was it was everything in one pack for 70 quid. Um, and, and it was there to, to the parents just as much as it was for the kids. Okay. Um, we're on the Leeds Business Podcast. Obviously, everybody knows Leeds Fest. I assume that's where the idea sort of started. It was. Yeah. When I was, uh, gosh, 18, I, that was when I had my soggy Leeds Fest experience. And then the idea was is that the the kit was built around that experience. We ended up sponsoring festivals up and down the UK, um, but never sponsoring Leeds Fest, unfortunately. But uh, you know, uh, live and learn. Great organisation, great idea, but maybe poor execution, some might say. Okay, so you're you're 19. You've got a brilliant business idea. How does a how does a 19 year old go about setting up a business? I was always entrepreneurial. I was selling sweets at school at 15 or 14. I had multiple kids working with me and lockers rented. I did it in two or three schools in the local area. It got so much. I loved enterprise. I wasn't academic and enterprise spoke to me. It was something I was able to excel in. So for me, it was that was my reward system to to build something out of nothing. I, I couldn't ever digest a book and get a good grade. Um, my parents always thought I could be doing more. Uh, but business for me was was my passion. Um, so sweets at six, 15 or so, then music events for my local area, Halifax uh, and Huddersfield. I'd run music concerts and they were the biggest concerts for our age group, 16 to 18 year olds. 
I had 700 to 1,000 kids turn up to these events every three weeks or so. It was, it was amazing. It was such good fun. And I learned then to build networks, marketing, uh, organizing events and, and all that stuff. And then obviously I loved concerts, festivals. It all tied together and, and ended up going to a festival and saw, um, saw another opportunity. It felt like a huge jump. I must admit, it felt like a huge jump going from hiring a venue, hiring some bands at 16, 17, 18 to negotiating with Chinese suppliers, dealing with customs and bringing stuff into the UK. But it, it was a heck of a lot of fun on the journey for sure. Okay. So it, was, it almost felt natural to you just to get into business and, and do business. It felt like there was no other choice. Um, I, I'm, I really struggle academically. I really sure I can read a book. I can, I could do a degree. I can do all those stuff, but it takes me probably 10, 20, 30% more effort than I see the other people at university doing. I, I don't, I genuinely don't think I'm, uh, naturally inclined to read large bodies of text. Um, however, to identify gaps and opportunities, bring people together and then maybe obsess over niche topics that excite me. I can really get into that. So, um, either natural or lack of options. And I don't know what it was. Um, not, sorry, I'm rambling on here, but not lack of options in a sense of my life. I am, you know, a privileged young man. I have uh, my parents who come from good backgrounds. I, I've had options in life, um, but maybe my academic options, I just didn't feel I had them there because I always compared myself to the other kids who were probably a bit well-read. And if I can't get an A, what's the point in competing in that race? But if I can be an entrepreneur and be the best one, that kind of what spurred me on. Brilliant. So you've, okay, so you've got this idea, you've sourced the product, and then how did you fund it? Did you fund it yourself or did you go out and get external funding? Well, student loans are a funny old thing. Um, they're, uh, they, they, they just every three months give you a big lump sum of cash. Um, that was the first part, and that was myself and a couple of other students that got in and funded it. Um, and that funded it for the first few months. And then because it had the funding, because then we won some awards and because and awards for nothing, by the way, awards purely for being a young entrepreneur and applying for the award and selling on the idea that this is a great idea. That that's why I won the award. There was no one of my investors eventually said that I was all fur coat and no knickers, which is a bit unfair. But, uh, the, you know, these awards necessarily didn't have much substance to them, but but it, it gave this persona, this perception that, that we were were more successful than we were for sure. So it started off with students funding myself, my student loan, my other, couple of my friends. And then we were able to pitch to an investor who believed in me more than the idea. And I think that's, that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned throughout all of business that the People have a thousand ideas a day, but the the execution and the charisma behind those ideas is worth so much more um, than a balance sheet and even a good idea. Right. Okay. Okay. And, and and can I ask how much? How much did this? Was it just single person? How much did they back you for? There was the mainly it was one investor and and another chipped in a, a, a minority amount as well. But but you know grateful for both investments. It was somewhere around the three hundred thousand pounds mark. So it was for a nineteen twenty twenty one year old maybe by that time, it was a hell of a load of cash. I had no idea. Like my my parents, beautiful wonderful people. They've never seen that amount of cash in their life. I've never seen that amount of cash in my life. You know it it, it was a lot of money, a, a scary amount of money for sure. Okay okay, so. Right, so we've got a brilliant business idea. We've got the funding. How did the execution go? Obviously, I assume ex importing from China is not the easiest thing to do, and and obviously selling it to to uh, festival goers and their mums. 
um yeah um it wasn't it wasn't straightforward uh it's not easy importing there's taxes added on top at the end there's you know you've got to have the right codes right line items you've got to bring it all over i made one huge mistake i invested significantly in stock rather than finding a just-in-time drop shipping method which wasn't as popular back then i will say so but if i was to do it again and if i was given the same amount of money I'd have probably put 60% of it into marketing rather than 80% of it into stock like I did. I'd have probably flipped it the other way um, and, and, and gone for it that route. So brought it all into the UK, uh, expected a million pounds worth of sales, probably ended up with around 90,000 pounds worth of sales and didn't plan or prepare for the runway to survive two or three festival seasons to build the brand up. So ultimately the business failed um and when i say failed i mean it ended up owing money to other people we had to give stock in return for the debt where we could um i had to dismiss people who i'd hired i hired six people my best friend's mum my dad's friend from the pub we sound like a right ragtag team but ultimately they were still friends and people that i knew that were on board with this idea that was going to go to the moon and, and ultimately never never made it past orbit so it was a bit of a bit of a frustrating time for sure and for me to live with that failure at 20 years old after being deemed Yorkshire's Young Entrepreneur of the Year and um, I got an award of Prince Andrew but I don't really talk about that one anymore. I had all these different things going on and I was thinking it was all going to work out great but it was genuinely all fur coat and no knickers as previously mentioned. Okay okay let's just let's just unravel a little bit of that. Why you know why did you only get 90 grand's worth of sales and and not the the million pounds worth of sales that you thought you were going to get we invested 80% of value into stock and 20% running costs a bit of marketing the marketing efforts were home run marketing efforts where we would sponsor major festivals and pay through the nose for it and pay amounts up front it was completely inexperienced all the time i should have offered amounts up front plus shares of revenue i should have um found drop shipping solutions made less gross profit and purchased from the uk and, and and brought everything together as and when ordered we ended up with something like 1500 kits in the uk or 500 i can't remember kits in the uk most of which didn't sell and it was just it's exhausting it's draining it's embarrassing it's humiliating my dad came into the office all one day and saw that we had these six people working. We were in these nice offices, and he just said, "What's what's it all about? What what is it you're doing?" Like he doesn't, he didn't, and he was right. He didn't quite. So you're selling tents, but there's no tents in this office. All right, fine, they're in a warehouse. But where's it all happening? Where's it all coming from? And some of our better trading was done at the festival selling headlamps for triple the price we bought them for because people needed headlamps in that moment rather than the plan we really wanted which was a heck of a load of kits ordered before the event turn up give someone a great service and then and then leave there was all sorts of issues and challenges with the business if i could do it once more i'm sorry for rambling on phil but what i would have done is i would have procured the tents from funding social organizations to collect the spare tents from festivals clean them up and then resell them in that sense, that would have been much better environmentally, economically, all sorts of reasons why. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's great what you're saying because, you know, this is where we learn our business lessons is from the mistakes. We don't just go, yeah. oh, that was yeah. a mistake, full stop. 
what you're doing and what you know the way you're talking through it we've mentioned this word already therapeutic you can see all the things you did wrong and all the learnings you've mm. you know you've got from that and and you know that hey it could have been it could have been a, a great business idea i mean i think it, i you know as a parent of kids who've been to festivals it, it's a great business idea it's just executed badly and it you know my nephew he is obsessed he's he's, he's 22 now he remembers the full he's been there from when he was a kid and saw me go through my challenging times with this business he's like you need to start it again and i'm just thinking how how i mean it probably gets some good press but ultimately i don't think festivals would welcome me back with open arms let's say right okay okay is that that's down to money money's owed to suppliers and things like that not to the festivals no to, due to what happened in the story down the line which i'm sure we'll get to um but we'll see okay okay that's quite a nice lead in point there but before we get on to the next chapter i just want to talk to everybody about the leeds business podcast fair deal the leeds business podcast fair deal is part me part you the listener my part of the deal is every week I bring you inspirational, motivational, and fascinating business leaders like Jacob, totally free of charge. Your side of the deal, dear listener, has two parts to it. Part number one, post a review of the show at Apple Podcasts app. You can't do it on the website, you've got it on the app. Or post a review at Spotify, or post a review at podchaser.com, or if you're watching on YouTube, give us a wave, Jacob, watching on YouTube, um give us a thumbs up for this review this this episode and post a review part two of your part of the fair deal is to recommend this podcast to one person only one person one person you think will get benefit from it there you go that's the lead business podcast fair deal fair deal jacob sounds like a fair deal to me phil okay so before my ramble you gave us a little hint that that not only were things not going well with the business, but it got worse. So do you talk us through the next stage? It, it, it's never easy. Like it's never, when I come on to podcasts and talk about th these things, I said to you before the show that for me, it's, it's kind of part therapy, part therapy to do this. Um, but also I really hope it's um, an opportunity for parents listening or for people who are in a really, uh, challenging time themselves at the moment to to understand that asking for help is so much better than maybe trying to deal with all the issues yourselves and thinking no matter how good you think your answers are they're, they're probably not if you're in a desperate situation so um for me i uh i i i i made the regrettable every business had a link to the other business so the sweet selling suggested i was going to be a kid that was going to push the rules regardless Going to music events because I was able to connect and network with lots of kids. That made a lot of sense to me um, that I could bring them all together to, to concerts because I loved concerts at that age. And then that leads into music festivals, which makes sense. And then it kind of goes full circle because whilst I was at music festivals, um, drugs were abundantly available. Whilst I was at university, that was the same. And so what? Drugs are everywhere. You can get them. You, can, you could you could walk out on the street probably no matter which town you're in and find someone. I I I don't know. I can't I can't say that for sure, but I reckon they're not the hardest things to come by in modern society. Um, and and for me, they just seem so abundantly available whilst I was at university and, and during the festivals that as the business 
got those £90,000 of sales versus the £1 million of sales and we were going out. And I realised I, I was in personal debt. For me, the obvious choice was, well, how do I pay this debt off quickly so that I can live debt-free and go on to the next enterprise or, God forbid, get better at the next proposed enterprise? And for me, it was a case of drugs are easy to get at a festival, get some drugs and sell them. Okay. Not the best idea. Um, there's damage that comes with that. There's damage for predominantly people around me, people that, that will be taking it. And I, I, I have no idea of the consequences that it might have had on others around me. Um, no idea. Um, but then you think about the people within my inner circle who, you know, saw what the outcomes of that were. And then myself, who was taking the drugs. Um, and and it all it all obviously spirals out very quickly. And, and I was at this festival. I was I, I had drugs on me. And undercover security um, arrested me. Um, and lo and behold, this was at Leeds Fest. Full circle from where the idea started to where it all ended. And undercover security arrested me and they took me out of the festival. And I had my ID on me and I had my lazy camper hoodie on. I don't know what that was about. I have no idea what that was about. Some said I'm a wasn't a very good drug dealer. Other people said it was a way to kind of pull the ripcord on everything and just kind of get everything to fail at once. It was an escape and out, whatever. Personally, I thought I was indestructible. I didn't ask for help. I didn't think I was doing any damage or any wrong. Um, I thought I'd get away with it. I had all the arrogance and all the the belief that I, I, I you know, I can do. I'm, I can do anything I want. You know, they've put me on TV. They've put me. I can achieve anything. I can achieve it. I could be the best drug dealer ever. And thankfully I was arrested. Thankfully I was taken out of the, the festival. Um, the guy saw my ID and I am the spitting image of my mother. And he saw my ID, my name and my address. And he was like, you're Jane's son, aren't you? Um, and he knew my mum. I said, how do you know my mum? That was a stupid question. And he said, because I've worked with her for 30 years in the police. Mum's Mum was a retired police officer. And mum had her home raided whilst I was in the warm, comfy police cells with a sandwich and a cup of tea. I, I was crying. I was upset. But the police were incredibly caring for me. Um, they were great with the police in that situation for a, a scummy drug dealer. And then, and then dad was having his home raided. But dad was an ex-drugs investigator. So for one night, in one night for my family, I absolutely flipped their world upside down. Absolutely flipped their world upside down. I was in the police cell, I think, for 21 hours or something. I can't remember. Um, I was coming down off drugs. I was, it was a bloody wake-up call. It was, it was terrifying. And I, I was seeing my whole life unfold with the newspapers, with my parents, with the fear of everything. And I remember just wanting my parents in that moment. No matter what, I just wanted my parents in that moment. And um, the first people to pick me up, the first people to pick me up um, from the police station were my parents. Um, and in that moment, Probably wasn't that moment, but I look back at that moment now and recognise my privilege. Recognise that my parents even wanted to know me, that I knew them already, that they had a car, that they could come and pick me up from the police station, that they were, maybe not in that moment, but ultimately willing to forgive. Um, and I remember the words saying, my mum just said, why have you done this to us? Um, that, that's tough, that's brutal. And dad used the words, he said, you think you're bloody infallible, you think you're indestructible, but nothing can touch you. And it was, it was a, I'm not going to give you a war me story. I was really comfortable in that, but it was in that moment I recognised the damage I'd done to the people around me.
And that was where the Lazy Camper failed. Ultimately, that was the, it might have failed before with the lack of sales and it might have failed before with all of that. But I put that nail in the coffin, that last nail in the coffin. And that, that was it, that was done, which affected people who wanted to keep going with the Lazy Camper after it, you, you know, in different forms. No chance. And do you think, do you think subconsciously you almost tried to self-destruct? Or was it, or was it just a financial thing? I need to clear this debt. This is the quickest way of doing it. I want the debt thing to be the store. I want I, I wanted that to be like the logical steps and reason. But if I was to tell you the truth, I believe we're all on this sliding slope towards death or suicide ultimately. And I was just on that way down to the bottom of that through drugs, through not giving a hoot about anyone else, not care. Honestly, I didn't care. I, I was I was in this moment where it was like, I was using probably the excuse that it was to pay off the debt. But I remember, and for years after, years after, I was like, this is all I deserve. This is all I deserve. Like, this is where I should be. I don't deserve everything else that I got. I deserve this. Um, I was nothing better than a common drug dealer, in my opinion. Um, and maybe I'd be a good drug dealer at that down the line. I don't know. Um, so I don't think it was for the debt, ultimately. Okay, okay, and okay. So let's go back to the story. We you got arrested, you mm -hmm. know, and all the all the extra layers over that of your parents and and there being police officers and all that sort of stuff. What happened after that? Eleven months of um, turning up to courts, courts being full, too busy to see me, pleading guilty at the earliest opportunity, all sorts of different things like that to. Ah, like the amount of times I had to leave the courtroom not being sentenced, that was that was murder. Wait, I, and I'm I'm sorry, I, I I'm not yet again trying to create a warmy story. I'm saying how difficult, it, how anxiety anxiety just it was being in the courts, wondering if the newspapers were going to be there or not. Who was sitting in the courts? What the, you know? What was going to happen next? Um, waiting to be sentenced to prison, where I believed I would ultimately be raped and attacked every day. Like, genuinely, I'm, I'm a. I'm a I'm a skinny kid. I, I was back then, maybe not as much now. But I was this whole idea of like prison is 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 not going to be great for someone like me, given that I've seen the Shawshank Redemption and Orange is a New Black. Um, and it was just waiting, 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 waiting to be sentenced. And I think ultimately on the first of July, I think it, I think I don't want to get my dates wrong, but I think it was like a. Uh, Wednesday the 1st of July 2015, might have been around then, the judge said, I'm going to need a couple of days to think on this. And I was like, oh, crap, I've got to go home yet again, pack my bag again, do all this again. Um, but he saved me from that because he said, I'm going to send you down for a couple of days to Armley Prison. And then the hope kicks in again that maybe in Armley Prison, for those two days, the judge is just going to scare me and then I'll come back up on the Friday and, and he'll release me and I've done my two days. Um, but that's what the 11 months looked like um, leading up to, to that date from August to, to July the following year. Right. So you, I assume life just is on temporary hold for, for all that, that period. Be, being entrepreneurial, I remember trying to help dad with his business, which he was wrapping up for retirement, saying, let's redo the website. Um, I wanted to work on a couple of other ideas during that time. Uh, 
I wanted to do more, like see if there's any way to separate myself from the lazy camp, but, but keep the energy going so that other people can run it, not for me, but without me, but ultimately have something there to do. So those 11 months, and I was also at university, I was finishing my degree. Um, so I was, I was trying to get my dissertation done in time, thinking any month now I could be sentenced. So I need to get that dissertation submitted. Um, so life, life had enough focus, but I've known people waiting for sentencing for four or five years now in, 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 in life beyond all of this. And I can imagine how much it truly affects their life. Like in terms of, we want people to be productive citizens. We want people to pay the price. There has to be somewhere in the middle. That's a little bit more compromising to, to, get people to get people answers sooner rather than later so all can move on you know perpetrator and victim yeah yeah yep no i get that i get that so two days later you go back to the court what did the judge say so i was taken down to armley stayed in armley for two nights my cellmate was called mr big you never want to hear that do you from a cellmate's name <laughs> um and great guy to be honest um fair enough terrible offenses drug dealing to the tune of £8 million, whereas I was arrested with, and I'm not mitigating my offence, by the way, when I say this, I was arrested with £1,300 £1, worth of drugs. He was arrested with £8 million worth of drugs and then convicted a second time for selling during his time in prison. Um, so it gives you an idea of, of you know, if if a drug dealer was, if a petty drug dealer, first-time criminal was put into prison, there's many more opportunities to learn from that experience and go down the wrong route. The judge brought me up after two days. Um, just a side story, when I was taken down the first time, I was in my suit and Richard Branson was mentioned because I'd received a grant off him when I was younger and he'd been supporting uh, with what we were doing. And I remember the prison staff having a good laugh, saying, oh, this kid knows Richard Branson, there you go. And, I, and it, was, it was funny to them. And to me, I was more, I, I was terrified in that moment. And I needed them to be my friends or to be friendly or to be nice. and. They gave me some clothes and said, you're going to want to change out of your suit because you'll stick out like a sore thumb in prison, especially a kid like you. And they gave me the clothes and I stood there with them waiting to be shown to a changing room or something. <laughs> and they were like, well, go on then. And I just had to get changed in, in reception. And uh, I'm not saying it yet again, a woe me story. I'm saying it more to like what, maybe what I was expecting uh, or, or how prepared I was. I thought I was prepared with my lists, with my items, you know, my research online, all nothing prepares you for it, no matter where you come from um, and, and which prison you end up in. It's all different. Um, judge brought me up after two days and said, I've looked through the guidance, um, which could be anything from a suspended sentence to potentially nine years in prison uh, for a leading role selling class a drugs i was arrested with mdma and weed um in my own right as someone doing it off my own back i wasn't forced i wasn't coerced i wasn't you know it was i don't ever want it to be misconstrued that i'd made a mistake i'd made a choice and it was a terrible choice it was a wrong choice but i didn't do it by accident it was something that i actively chose to do and, and I'll, I'll 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 regret it until i know i'll regret it until my last day but i'm hoping i can make something good of it but um Judge brought me up and said, try to avoid a prison sentence, but I cannot. He said, you have had all the trappings of a successful person. He mentioned something else about, you know, people around you, the effect it's had on them, could have asked for help. He was, <laughs> judges are very good judges of character. That's their job. They're very good. Uh, they're good at balancing things up. They're good at seeing reason. Um, and, and, and yes, uh, he sentenced me to what would be uh, it's, it's 28 months. Now, that's not 28 months in prison. 
but it's potentially up to 14 months in prison and 14 months in the community. And if you have good behavior, good place to go, if you're privileged, you get less than the 14 months. So I even got off lighter than that, I'd say, where I got nine and a half months in prison, four and a half months on tag and 14 months and that on tag in the community, in my home, you know, on a little ankle bracelet. Um, and then 14 months in um, still in home, but without the tag reporting to a probation officer every month. Um, I don't know whether it was enough. I don't know whether it was too little, I, I, too much. Uh, I got the sentence I got and I served every day in the idea that I deserve that. I deserve to be here. The judges thought it through. Some people might have said that you deserve more for even considering selling drugs right through to it might have been a lot for the amount you had on you. But for me, it was a case of I'll serve that sentence. I'll finish my rehabilitation period and then I'll continue to live in service from that point to find different ways to not only repay that debt, but hopefully recognize that a lot of the people I met inside deserve another chance at life and, and I'd want to ensure that they get that. Yeah. I mean, how did it feel when he said that, when he sent you down? Mum cried, heard that. Um, I looked to my family. It was just a number at the time. Um, and then I have to walk down lots of spirally steps and I was working out if I get a tag, what my release date would be. Now, most guys don't even know that they could get a tag four months before, four and a half months. I think it's even longer now. Um, for me, it was mathematical in that moment. It was, you're going to be sentenced. You've got to accept whatever it is. You need to focus more on preparing yourself for any sentence, whether it's one day or nine years. Um, if he'd have sentenced me to 24 months, which is four months less than what he gave me, it could have been a suspended sentence and could have resulted not in prison. At that moment, I knew I was going to prison. Um, and having two days in prison... I don't know. I was always lucky. I was always a jammy git, as some people would say. And I always thought maybe I think there's something in the back of my mind that maybe I'd get away with it. But I genuinely think the luckiest thing that happened to me was going to prison and seeing that different side of life. I was a snobby ass university student who didn't really want to, who would look down at his nose at people who would have all that. And then the first day in prison, I was sitting next to a person rattling coming off heroin after they'd just been did it just before they went into the courts, knowing that full well they'd be going to prison that night. Um, we need to see what the other side of the fence looks like as a society. We need to empathise with that. And for me, it was uh, the biggest wake-up call of my life um, that I was probably one of the only few people in that prison who was there out of a choice rather than desperation. Right. And you know, how was, how was prison for a white middle-class kid like you? son of two police officers that's the big one um that's the huge one yeah that's the big deal um i might as well have been put on a sex offenders wing with and i was offered to i was offered to and i said no i'd, I'd rather i'd rather stay amongst the general population um and nothing to do with people who you know in that situation commit those offenses for me it was very much about i knew once i was in a i'd have less options being put on a vulnerable wing um Judges and police officers and people with sexual offences get put on the vulnerable wing. Um, I wasn't necessarily that. I certainly didn't follow in the same footsteps as my parents, so maybe I stood a chance of surviving amongst the population. Mr Big um, vouched for me to other prisoners. I, I don't think I was his... Uh, I, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast, so I don't want to use uh, in, inappropriate language, but I don't think I was going to be holding his pocket walking around the courtyard necessarily. Um, but he was... Um, 
he's, you know, he, he obviously wasn't the fondest of the police, but he said to the other prisoners, he said, this kid's all right. Like, he's not an issue. He's not a problem. Uh, he's a smart kid. Let's let's work with, you know, let, let, let's not give him any grief. And, and that was great. And the newspapers posted, son of two police officers goes to prison, stuff like that, that got out on the wing. Not great. Um, I was attacked twice during my time in prison as a result of being the son of two police officers. I don't talk about it too much. I'm, I think I'm over it, but it was still traumatic regardless. What I found more traumatic and probably was that I enjoyed the response that other prisoners gave to the people who attacked me. So I was attacked and other prisoners went and devastated those two individuals who attacked me. They absolutely, you know, because they said Jacob's not someone that you need to attack, cause problems for this, that, the other. So they would go into their cell and, and absolutely, as I say, destroy those two individuals in, 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 a, in a way that was for me in that moment, I, I was a bit happy going, I know I'm, I know I'm fine in this prison now. I know I'm going to be okay. And then I look back on those two individuals and how how prison life treated them and how life will treat them beyond release. It's not going to get better for those guys if they don't have interventions or help. Like they're not in a situation. So um yeah, I prison for me was fine generally. It was mundane. Um, but I also found a lot of purpose in my life in that and wanted to stop pursuing money and start pursuing impact. And, and that that's something that was really good for me. And, and my first, I had two jobs in prison. One, my first job was sewing together 200 pairs of boxer shorts every day. Uh, so I got really good with the overlocking machine. I learned a new skill. Why not? Um, and then after two months, three months, my next job was being um, a peer mentor, someone who's in that prison supporting other prisoners. I became a Samaritan's listener for suicidal prisoners. We could all listen more. I talk too much. We've got two ears and one mouth. We need to remember to listen twice as much as we talk. Um, and being a listener, being a Samaritan was really helpful. Being a, how, like a, a peer mentor to help people prepare for forms on release, working for the St. Giles Trust. A huge honour. You can live a life in service. You'll be content for the rest of your life. It's it's phenomenal. And um, so for me, I actually was able to disguise this horrible sentence as something purposeful. I know you've mentioned it already, but it's 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 very Shawshank Redemption, isn't it? There wasn't the three sisters. You don't get raped in prison. Um, I'm thinking more. And I'm thinking more Andy Dufresne than the rest of it. <laughs> all right. Okay. Like for me, I can't separate the two from the other. You know. Um, there was times in the prison where I was mistaken for a staff member. I had jeans, a jumper on. I was polite. I well-spoken, this, that, the other. And it's hard, it's strange for me to talk about, but there were times where enough, where another staff member would go, shall I leave this gate open for you, sir? And I'm like, no, it's fine. You crack on. Don't worry about it. Because I don't know how much of it. I, fan I fantasised a lot that I bet I could walk out of here if I tried. And maybe that's what kept me saying that it was almost a choice to be there. Um, my skills were used. I was able to help people with business plans or help people plan their CVs or housing on release, complete forms. I loved that. I loved doing that. And I have no idea about my individual kind of involvement in other people's kind of life beyond prison. But I really hope that, you know, just by filling those forms out right or knowing a few tricks to get them prioritised on a top of the housing ladder or stuff like that when they were going to grab such things like that. I hope made a difference. So um, maybe it is a bit Andy Dufresne, but I think in any form of life, you know, you make yourself useful to other people. You'll survive any situation, whether it's prison, a desert island, or uh, a toxic corporate culture workplace, which I'd probably advise getting out of and switching if you're in one already. But it, it, just being useful, living in service for me is, 
it's something I enjoy. It's something that makes that gives me purpose. And and that purpose took you to the next stage, which is Offploy. So do you want to tell all our listeners all about that? Offploy is an organisation that takes people at risk of offending, and I'd like to circle back to that, and just helps them access greater opportunities in life. It helps people maximise their life's potential. I could phrase it another way and say it's for people who are socially excluded, getting them back into work, getting them in secure housing, getting the kids back in the life. I can phrase it another way and say specifically it's homeless people, young people, mental health issues, people who've never seen the inside of a police cell or been arrested by the police, but people who are at risk of offending. So Offploy is a mentoring service. Um, we are it's been phenomenally successful over the last seven and a half years now, goodness me. Um, we serve people from Newcastle to Torquay. Um, we run service in London, you know, Midlands, all, all the way around the country. We've got a team of 30, 70% who have been to the prison system, been through it themselves. Um, and, and we help individuals probably around, I think, I think we get about 3,000 referrals a year. And around 900 people go through our service every year to might be to get a job, might be to get back in a stable accommodation from sleeping on the streets or in the car. It might be to might be a family in debt that needs help managing their finances better. We're taking any flashpoints where crime happens and trying to get there before that leg breaks rather than dealing with a broken leg. We also support people who are in prison or have been to prison because on average, a person with a criminal conviction is 30% likely to reoffend within 12 months. So 30.9, I think the percentage is. So let's say 31. Um, and if they're going to be my neighbour, I want them free from crime. I want them working. I want them contributing to society. I want my friends, family, kids safe from crimes of desperation and poverty. And that's off ploy. Right. Okay. And And do you work direct with employers to get you know these ex-prisoners jobs or do you just advise them or you know how much are you part of that connection between the two i will work with people with convictions uh, socially i'll say people at risk of offending as a group and i will work with employers are like passing ships in the night they are not we're not a brokerage service so we teach the people with convictions we teach both sides how to fish ultimately um, so we teach people with convictions how to find jobs, when to disclose, if to disclose, um, what happens if they get rejected, how to deal with rejection, how to get back up on that ladder. It's not comfortable. It is not comfortable applying, no matter who you are. I was released from prison and it took me six weeks to start off ploy, but in that time I was frantically applying for jobs, interviews, rejections, horrible situation, especially when you assume you're going to be rejected. I, you can't, you go into interviews with hope most of the time, like, oh, if I don't get it, it's fine. There's a little bit of hope there. When you've got a conviction, you go in there thinking they're probably going to reject me. So you behave, you respond and you interview in a way that says I'll probably get rejected. So I best not give it, yeah, you know, I best not get my own. Anyway, so supporting people with convictions, we teach them how to fish. Any job, better job, career, dream job, A, B, C, D. Any job, better job, career, dream job. Um, a, B, C, D. Let's get them any job. Let's help them understand which employers will ask, which employers have to ask, uh, which ones won't ask. Great. On the other side, employers. Oh, my God. Imagine hiring a person with a criminal conviction. When I picture people with convictions, I still picture prisoners. I still picture Shawshank Redemption. The MOJ 
the gov.uk released only two weeks ago, or last week, one in four people in the workforce has a prior criminal offence. One in four. When we are in a post-Brexit, post-pandemic economy with hundreds of thousands of vacancies available, we cannot avoid hiring people with convictions, and we probably already are. Phil, it's one in three adult males between the ages of 18 and 52. I don't want to speculate, but I assume we're both within that window, so that's two of us here. We bring a third person in, and one in three of us probably has a conviction. Now, I know we know the answer there, but I'm saying that it's it's when we think about people with convictions... I think we picture murderers, terrorists, arsonists, criminals in prison and all that stuff. 54% for driving related offences. So when we think about people with criminal convictions, only 8% get sentenced to prison every year. 92% of people get community orders. So the other side is advising employers, whether you're a leads business or a PLC, we work with those employers from getting the culture right, recruitment processes, asking the dreaded question, rejecting people when they've got a conviction and we can't actually hire them, right through to measuring, measuring your impact and using it to profit your business. You know, when we hire, I'm sorry if I'm going on here too much, but when we hire someone with a conviction, for society, society saves after six months of employment £23,119. One person, six months of employment, 23 grand saved. Now, when businesses are applying for business from the government and they have to tick a social value box and say how much social value they're going to bring to society, hiring people with convictions is one of the most profitable things you can do. So for us, it's a good business case and a great social case. Right. I, I totally get that. And uh, as a as a former employer of staff, you know, being totally honest, you know, if I've got a pile of 20 CVs and one of the people in there has got a conviction, you go, well, okay, that makes it easy. It's down to 19. It's, it's, it's far too easy for employers to go, right, no. And how do, we, how, do we change, how do we change that? How do we, you know, there's a lot of people listening to this who are employers and, and yep. may well have come across this situation or will come across this situation. Mm -hmm. How do you change their mindset? I'll first of all start by saying it's not, illegal to discriminate against people with convictions. Um, it's illegal to discriminate against people whose convictions have been spent and they shouldn't be disclosing and you shouldn't be asking in most situations. And spent is just a fancy word for saying a certain amount of time has passed where they it will no longer appear on a basic DBS check. It will always appear on a standard. It will always appear on an enhanced, um, apart from some filtered convictions, which I'm not going to go into on this call. So how do you talk to employers about that? Well, because they can do it legally. They can discriminate legally. It's not a protected characteristic. I don't think, and I say this with love, that employers will have much of a choice soon enough. And it's the spoils of hiring this fit, able, willing, determined, ready, skilled workforce are going to go to the employers who act first. Brexit's happened. The pandemic's happened. You are struggling to recruit as it is. There are piles, hundreds of thousands of people with convictions who will take an opportunity that's not necessarily gutting fish and there's nothing wrong with gutting fish. It is a great job for a career progression for people, but that's where people think they're going to go. They're going to go work in muddy boot zones and gutting fish when I've got chartered accountants that were convicted of entirely unrelated offences that are saying, well, maybe I could take an admin job and all this. And by the way, I'm not turning my nose up at this. 
I'm saying that when I'm looking for a finance manager for my organization, I'm going to go find the chartered accountant with the conviction that will join me at 20 grand below the market average because they want to prove themselves. Um, so how do we get people doing it? I think employers, the first thing in the head will be, well, I don't want to do it. Maybe. And they'll say, actually, no, I'd be willing to give someone a chance because my nephew went to prison once or I know a guy down the street that went to prison. And he wasn't that bad of a guy. And we know not to discriminate in this culture now. Thank goodness. And then they'll say, well, how do I do it? Where do I start? I'm scared of doing it for two different reasons. Reputational risk, because they might kill, like they might stab one of my staff. They might nick my stock. They might be, I might be Googled alongside them. You know, so-and-so now works at this organization. That's not an issue. 86% of employers say they benefit from greater reputation when it comes to hiring people with convictions. That's phenomenal. And then the other side of that is, well, what if I get it wrong? And what if I commit an offence in hiring this person? Or what if I don't have the right insurance in place? Or what if I ask a question wrong and I insult or discriminate against the person and all that stuff? Um, there's all sorts of free advice lines. There's all sorts of free support in doing that. Interestingly, there's very few things you can get wrong because they're not a protected characteristic. Um, we are not a protected characteristic, people with convictions. Um, you might ask questions, you might fumble, it might get a bit awkward when you're trying to understand what to ask and when to ask, and it might be a bit... Uh, ultimately, you know, if your intentions are pure and you're wanting to give people that second chance, that other chance, um, then I, I'd say just give it a go or work with organisations like us, not trying to plug us there too much, but I am on a podcast, so why not? Um, that we can we can be there for organisations to answer those questions to help you with your policies, processes, stuff like that. So um, my advice to employers is give it a go. Give it a go. You can get very little wrong, I promise. Famous last legal words, right? Um, don't hold me legally responsible for that, but you can get very little wrong, asterisk. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. And and I was going to ask you to do a, a how-to, as all our guests do on yeah. this podcast. So that's pretty much, that's pretty much, was it, was was how to hire an ex-convict? I think so. I think you've got to recognise that one in four people in the workforce has a conviction. You need a plan on how you're going to deal with people with convictions, applying and colleagues who disclose after they've applied and colleagues who get criminal convictions after they when they already work for you. There needs to be a bit of a plan there. And even if it's back of a napkin or a one page policy, just get something started. Um, we're working with the Chartered Institute of Professional De Personal Development, CIPD. I don't want to get it wrong um, to help them with some guidance that's coming out in the in the next week or so as well so that's that's a really great starting point to where to hire how to hire people with criminal convictions in a fair and safe manner brilliant brilliant give it a go that's my the how-to is give it a go i think one of the things you said there which i think i think you know employers should consider is you know you can get very good value for money because these people are desperate to to get back into society and back into a proper job and one assumes you're going to get a harder worker because they're desperate to prove themselves as well absolutely i mean the the the, the cases are phenomenal that you, you look at retention after 12 months of i think it's the timsons group and 92 percent of people are still with them after 12 months not only are employers struggling to hire people they're struggling to keep people now it's not just about desperation but it's also about gratefulness loyalty from people with convictions 
when you've written yourself off and someone else hasn't written you off, can you imagine what effect that has on you? That, that's huge. That's huge. Um, there's a period with which after someone um, is sentenced by a judge, um, and it's really complex, but everyone has an, an amount of time with which they must talk about their offence. Unfortunately, most people don't know how long that time is, and we, we, we're, we're bringing out a calculator to work it out for people. They have to keep disclosing that offence for a number of years, and the government's just changed it. They've just allowed the option for hundreds of thousands of people to now one day not talk about their offence. Before, they had to talk about it for the rest of their life. Now, one day, it will be behind them. Um, that period is the reason why employers will benefit from hiring people with convictions. They could hire someone with four years left with which they have to disclose. And the chances are that if you give them a great job and a great opportunity, they'll fight to stay with you for those next four years as a minimum, uh, not to mention the loyalty that will, and skills and, and, and reasons to stay that will build up over that time. But they're not looking over their shoulder after the six month probation period already. These guys are thinking, right, I've got four years. I, no one is going to ask me about my conviction for the next four years if I stay with this job now, who already knows about my offence, who's already given me that chance. I'm going to stay here. We need to be considering this cohort, especially when it's one in four of the workforce. And that's that's a, a brilliant business case for, for, for doing so. It really, really is. It really is. Jacob, it's been absolutely brilliant. One last question for you, and I ask all our guests this. Who are you going to give a shout out to for another Leeds business? My goodness, I could not shout anyone else other than this one organisation. Um, if you look at the website designed by Inc, and I think it's .co.uk, um, look at Offploy's website, look at our brand, look at their branding. They are this beautiful young couple from somewhere around the Greater Leeds area. Um, and I don't hire them for that reason, but their design work is beautiful. They do all our cards. They've done my wedding invites recently. They do all our website. They do all our marketing materials. They get, they understand this whole level of, you won't tell them what you need. You, you'll tell them what you need, but you won't tell them how to do it. That's the point. So you'll say, I need a fly that does this. I need to get this point across. And here's some text. Fine. Don't go in and tell them what colors and shapes you want on it. There's so much better than you. I promise. There's so much better than what you know. So this is designed by Inc. It's Matt and Nicole. Um, amazing couple, amazing design work. I couldn't recommend them more and I wish them all the best with their, their work because they've been with us for, gosh, most of our seven years now. They've done the University of Huddersfield. They've done some big clients. They've done some good stuff um, and they'll give you that personal service. So I like them a lot. Fantastic. There will be a link to them down in the show notes um, once this goes live, as there will to Offploy and Jacob. Jacob's been absolutely amazing. Thank you very, very much indeed. I'm really grateful for the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found it interesting, inspiring and of use. To make sure you don't miss out on any future episodes, please subscribe to the show. Go on, do it now. Do it now before you go off and do something else. Thank you. Much appreciated. Oh, and don't forget our fair deal. See you next week.